want to begin today by asking you a sobering question. Have you ever had to uh, sit at the bedside of a sick loved one in the last hours of his or her life? Have you ever attended a funeral of someone near and dear to you who died too young, tragically? You ever ask God in those moments, God, what are you doing? Why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you doing what you're doing to this family? Why are you doing what you're doing to me? How can this be for my good? Ever ask one of those questions or, or, or maybe all of those questions? I think if we're honest, many of us would have to agree that at one time or another, to one degree or another, we have been there. And if not, you will be because of the fallen state of things in our world. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 7. This morning, we are going to read two stories of individuals who were faced with these types of circumstances. And these stories are important for us. They deserve our attention because in these stories, we learn great and glorious truths about what God is up to in the dark times of life. And we learn great and glorious truths about our Lord Jesus and His gospel. But they're two very tragic stories to begin. In verses 1 through 17 of Luke 7, Luke tells of two tragic stories and two miraculous works of Jesus that He performs in Capernaum and in a place called Nain. And with these two Miracles, we learn even more about Jesus. We learn from these two stories that the Lord is present in the storms of this life, that He cares, and that He is at work. We're going to learn from these two stories that our Lord is a compassionate, loving, merciful, gracious, impartial and powerful miracle worker who has been sent by God to heal the sick and bring life to the dead. He has entered in to this dark and dead world and He has come to bring hope to the hopeless and light to our darkness. That's what we're going to learn this morning. Let's begin first by examining the first story, it's a familiar story to many of you, the story of the centurion's great faith and God's great work of healing that he brings to his young servant. And this is the first truth we learn from this first story. Look at this, point number one. We learn that Jesus is a willing, impartial, and powerful miracle worker who marvels at great faith and heals the sick and the dying. Look at Luke 7, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word, believers. Hear it. After he had finished saying all his sayings in the hearing of the people, so after his sermon on the mount, right, Jesus entered Capernaum. 
Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Verse 7. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one go, and he goes, to the other come, and he comes, to my servant do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, Not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Amazing story. Matthew includes it in his gospel as well. And many get all bent out of shape over the differences of these accounts because in Matthew's telling of the story, he makes it sound as if the the centurion goes out himself to meet Jesus, yet here we have him sending messengers out with this message, the elders of the Jews. I don't have any problem with those differences. I hope you don't as well. Luke, like he normally does, he just gives us a bit more detail here. We learn from these two accounts that word is sent to Jesus from this centurion by way of these Jewish messengers, and they report to Jesus word to word the message of the centurion. Think about when someone's quoted in a newspaper article or an online article. While that article is written by someone else, when they're quoting that significant someone, we often read those words as if that person is speaking directly, right? That's what's going on here. We also learn in this story that this soldier is unique. In that while he is a Gentile, a leader of a hundred men, he is not your typical, arrogant, heartless, unbelieving, prideful, godless Roman soldier that you might picture and that we would have encountered in that day. But instead, he is a humble, gentle, loving, and caring individual. We, we learn in this story that he has a great love and respect For the Jewish people, he may have even been a a God-fearer. God-fearers were Gentile converts to Judaism who existed at this time. They were around this time. Many of them had had turned away from the paganism of their own people and had turned toward following after the one true God of Israel. We learn in the book of Acts, you'll read about it this week, of another centurion named Cornelius who was also a a God-fearer, the one that Peter is sent to minister to. So this might have been true here of this centurion. Him being a God-fearer, it actually makes a lot of sense because in this story he knows a lot about the Jewish customs here. He seems to know it would have been more acceptable for him to send Jewish leaders in his place 
to approach this Jewish rabbi. And he also knows that it is inappropriate for him to have Jesus in his home. We'll see that in just a minute. We also learn in verse 5, he loved the Jewish nation, built them a synagogue. Not your normal Roman soldier, right? So these Jewish elders go to Jesus and speak on behalf of this man. And surprisingly, they speak very, very well of him. Of course, it's not that surprising when we know what he's already done for them, right? But they speak highly of him. Very unique, because there was great tension at this time between Gentiles and Jews, especially between the Jewish religious leaders and Roman centurions. When they brought this request to Jesus, they say this of the man, he is worthy to have you do this for him. We learn in verse 2 that this Roman centurion had a servant who was dear to him who was sick. We're told he valued him greatly, so much so that when he hears of Jesus, he sends out these Jewish leaders to seek Jesus' help. When the elders bring the request to Jesus about healing this young man, we're told they, they pleaded with him, saying, this centurion is worthy to have you do this for him. He loves our nation. He has built our synagogue. He had gone above and beyond for them, building them a place of worship. So they plead with Jesus for Jesus to go to this centurion and heal his servant. And Jesus' response, not surprising to us, but would have been to many in that day, he basically says, I'm going to go to his house. Verse 6, and Jesus went, With them. Very significant. In this day, if a Jew were hearing this story told, they might have been shocked to hear that someone like Jesus was going to visit someone like this Gentile centurion. Remember, they questioned Peter about it when he entered into Cornelius' home. We're going to read about that. Acts 10 and Acts 11, he has to answer for entering into Cornelius' home. Jews did not go into Gentile houses. If you did in this day, you would be considered ritually and ceremonially unclean, especially if you're the Messiah, right? Yet here we have Jesus heading toward this man's home. And it also speaks very highly of this centurion, again, because these Jewish elders are the ones pleading his case and urging Jesus to go. Notice it's the centurion who objects. Look at verse 6 again. When Jesus was not far from his house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. Notice the humility of this Roman leader. While the Jewish elders say of him in verse 4, he is worthy, he says in verse 6, I am not worthy. He he knew the protocol. He knew he was not to approach a rabbi like Jesus. That's why he said, I did not presume to come to you. He knew he wasn't to approach him nor to entertain him in his home. What this centurion failed to realize is who Jesus is and what he came to do came for the Jews and the Gentiles, didn't he? What he failed to realize about the Messiah is that the Messiah who is completely clean, when he encounters one who is unclean, 
The Messiah who is completely clean is not made unclean, but the one who is unclean is made completely clean. He failed to realize that. He had a high view of Jesus, but his, his view fell short. But he does show great faith here in Jesus. No doubt God had been doing a work in this man's heart and life. Notice his response to Jesus. Remember, he had sent for Jesus to heal his young servant who was deathly ill. Jesus begins to head to his house. He sends messengers out to stop him before arriving at his home. What, what's the plan here from this centurion? He summons Jesus and then stops him a little ways out. How does he expect Jesus to heal his servant? Look at verses 7 and 8. This is great. He says... But say the word, just say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. He says, Jesus, I understand that you're a person in authority, I too am in authority. I am under authority, but I also have soldiers under me. And I say to one, go and he does and come and he does and do this and he does it. I understand you have this authority. Just say the word, Jesus, and it'll be done. I believe you have that kind of authority. You can heal this man where you stand. Listen to Jesus' response, verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Don't you love that? People have been doing their fair share of marveling at Jesus, right? In Luke's gospel, for the way in which he teaches and for the miracles he performs, for the things said about him and for the claims he makes for himself. Here you have Jesus marveling at this man for his great when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. What a statement. What a thing to be said of a Roman centurion of all people, a Gentile from Galilee. He says, I have not seen faith like this man's faith anywhere. And I've been up and down this land from Dan to Beersheba. He takes the cake. What a thing to be said. By Jesus of a Gentile. Gentiles, that's who we are. We're getting a hint here of the work that Christ came to do in the hearts and lives of Gentiles. We're seeing the universal scope of, of God's redemptive work through Christ right here, right? As we keep reading this book and as we study through the chapters of church history, we learn there are many other Gentiles who come to faith who show great faith in Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Jesus marvels at this man's faith and responds to his great faith by healing his sick servant. Look at verse 10 again. And when those who had been sent, returned to the house, they found the servant well. Luke just tells us when everybody got back home, the servant was healed. As far as Luke is concerned, Jesus didn't even need to speak a word. Now we learn in the other account he did, but, but he didn't even need to do that. That's how powerful he is, right? He has the power to heal the sick and the dying with a simple word from a distance. That's the reason he came, to bring healing to the sick and to bring life 
to the dying. We learn in this story that Jesus is both able and willing to do this great work. He is able, he is mighty to heal, he is mighty to save, and he is also willing. He is gracious, merciful, and loving. Now, if he were able but not willing, that would not be good news, right? And if he were willing but not able, that would not be good news. He is both believers. He is willing and able to do that work. He did that work for them and he is able to do that work for you today. Scripture is clear that we are sick with sin. We are spiritually dead. Yet God sent his son to become one of us to live the perfect life we could never live that Adam, Adam failed to live and lay his life down and take it up again so that we through him could be forgiven of sin and restored to a right relationship with the living God. God tells us if we will look to Jesus in faith for healing and restoration like the centurion does here for his servant, Jesus will bring spiritual healing and eternal life to us where we stand. Wow. Have you bowed the knee to King Jesus? Have you come to him humbly like this Roman soldier does in Luke 7? Have you forsaken your sin? Are you trusting in him alone for salvation? If not, I pray you would today. Let's continue by looking at the second story. Here's the second key truth we learn from this second story of Jesus. We learn that Jesus is a compassionate and loving Lord who graciously raises the dead to life. We learn that truth in verses 11 through 17. Let's read it together and then we'll discuss it. Hear the word of God. Verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Wow, right? After the events of healing the Roman centurion's servant near Capernaum, Jesus and a crowd that was following him, probably some in the same crowd that, that heard him comment on the centurion's great faith, they traveled with Jesus to a place called Nain. It was about 25 miles from Capernaum. Little bitty place. I read where today this town has a population of about 200 people, probably no larger in this day. So when hearing that, the question then becomes, why would he travel a day's journey from Capernaum to this little bitty town called Nain? I'm from Arkansas. There are lots of little bitty towns like that in Arkansas. And, and for an Arkansan, this would be like someone saying he left ministry in Little Rock, which is a population of about 200,000, and he traveled to Bauxite, 
which is about the same distance in a town of about 500 people, okay? Seems like a random move, doesn't it? And I read some different commentators try to make sense of why Jesus would try to go there. And one said this, I won't mention who it is, but he says, we don't know why Jesus would choose to go to such an isolated, out-of-the-way place, but he went. I believe I know why. The answer is simple. Look at our second point again. Because he is a compassionate and loving Lord who graciously raises the dead to life. We're told in verse 11 that he went to name his disciples and a great crowd with him. And as they drew near the gate of this town, this group encountered another group. Now I, I imagine those in Jesus' group were upbeat, right? They had seen him do miraculous things and they're wanting to see more. But the other group was the exact opposite. They encounter a funeral procession. Someone has died. You ever been driving in your car and you're happy listening to music and singing and then you see a long train of cars? Kind of changes things, doesn't it? And you think to yourself, I wonder, wonder who died. Was it someone who lived a long and full life? Those are not as sad, right? Or someone whose life ended too soon. Someone who left living parents behind. A husband, a wife, or kids. Well, Luke tells us about this funeral procession, and it's a sad one. We're told it's for the only son of a widow. Very sad. Not only has she lost her husband, but now her only son. This meant in it for her in this day, she was now on her own, and life was not kind in the first century in Galilee for a childless widow. This meant... She was probably going to be penniless, forced to, to, to beg and glean for food. Why did Jesus come to Nain? For this reason, right? For this woman. I don't know this for sure, but I bet before this encounter with Jesus, this woman was probably thinking to herself, what am I going to do now? Soon this crowd will leave. And I'll be left on my own. Who is going to care for me? We get our answer in verse 13. Look at it. It's awesome. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, do not weep. Wow. Now, I read where certain philosophers at times would call for people in this day to not weep. But the reason why is because it did no good. They, they would reason, do not weep because it does not help. There's no use in it. That is not why Jesus says this here. He is not saying, do not weep because it does not help. He's saying, do not weep because I have come to help. He has come to Nain for this reason. Look at verse 13. The Lord saw her. He had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the beer and the bears stood still. Now, a beer was a plank of wood. In this day, the dead were not placed in coffins because they weren't buried in the ground. They were placed on these planks of wood, and those planks of wood were then put on a shelf in a tomb, and that tomb was sealed with a rock. Another detail, 
they usually buried the dead on the same day one died. One, because they, they couldn't preserve bodies like we do today. And also for religious reasons. A, a dead body in the city would have made those in the city unclean. So Jesus and his followers have showed up in this small town on the day this boy has died as this procession is making its way through the town on the way to bury this widow's only son. She is probably at the height of her grief. Jesus Jesus sees her, has compassion on her, says, do not weep. And he comes up and touches the beer. And we're told that the pallbearers stop in their tracks. And, and again, so would anyone hearing this story. They would have paused in shock. The reason why is for a Jewish person, there was no greater ritual impurity than to touch a corpse or to touch a thing that the corpse had touched. Did not mean one day of ritual uncleanness, but seven days in a very elaborate purification ceremony to follow. So to think that the Messiah might be defiled like that was unfathomable. But again, we, we see, once again, like we saw with the Roman centurion, like we saw with Jesus' encounter with the leper in Luke 5, the unclean does not make he who is completely clean unclean, but the other way around. Verse 14. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up. Underline dead, he was dead. The dead man sat up after Jesus said, arise, right? And began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Jesus brought life to this dead man and restored him to the living. Instead of defiling himself and being set apart from his people, Jesus brought life to this man and restored him to his. That's what Jesus does. Notice the response, verse 16, fear seized them all. I imagine so, right? And they glorified God. Yes, that's the right response right there. Luke highlights this for us again and again and again. When Christ brings life to the dead, worship is the proper response. When's the last time you took time to praise God for giving you life, believers? They glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Notice they recognize Jesus as a prophet. Now, we know he is much, much more than that, but why does that title come to mind, prophet? Well, probably because Jesus' actions here reminded them of another, a great prophet named Elijah. 1 Kings 17, the prophet Elijah has an encounter with the widow from Zarephath and her son dies and God works through Elijah to bring her son back to life and when the son is raised to life, the prophet takes the boy and gives him to his mother. You'll read that story this week. Jesus does something similar here, which is why I believe they say a great prophet has risen among us. One who touches funeral beers and does not become unclean. One who encounters the dead and brings the dead back to life again. And consider what this woman must have been thinking. After seeing this sad procession and having compassion on this childless widow, Jesus raises her dead child to life and gives him back to her. Can you imagine what this must have been like for her? 
She was reminded on that day, in the midst of enormous grief, God knows her, cares for her, and loves her. Believers, I don't know the specifics of what's going on in the lives of everyone here this morning and in the second service, but I can imagine with the, with the size crowd that we have in both services that there are some who are going through a tough season, a dark and difficult time right now. Maybe you're in a great storm here today, grieved by where you are in life. Believers, let me remind you this morning, God knows you. He cares for you. He loves you. And He is at work in the midst of the mess of this broken and fallen and sin-stained world and is working His will for your good, for your joy, and ultimately for His glory. God's Word, He tells us that. God shows these truths to us through this woman. On this day, she has experienced the most painful and difficult of consequences that comes as a result of living in this broken, fallen world. The death of a loved one, the death of her only son. Here Jesus comes to her, shows her compassion and mercy and grace and love. God has his son travel a day's journey to this woman in the middle of nowhere in this small town of Nain to do this great work. Why? Because of how great she is? Say no. Because of how great he is. Believers, he did the same for you. Tim reminded of us that of, uh, reminded that to us in his prayer just a moment ago. While you were dead in sin, God looked upon you, chose you, came to you, and saved you, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. Jesus is a compassionate and loving Lord who graciously raises the dead to life. The people of Nain came face to face with this truth on this day. And Luke tells us they glorified God saying, A great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. Underline that. Then word spread all over everywhere. Verse 17. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Word spread that God had visited His people. He sure had. God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father, through the work of His Messiah, in the power of His Spirit, had visited His people in name on that day. But like we observed with the centurion in the first story, they had no idea how right they really were. While they viewed Jesus as someone special, their view still fell short of who He truly is. They viewed Him as a prophet God was working in and through, not Emmanuel, God with us. They believed that, that God had visited them by sending them a great prophet. What they did not yet know was that God was there with them in that day, in their midst, visiting His people in the person of Jesus Christ. It was God the Son who encountered this crowd and raised the dead. Many of them did not yet know that. And the question I want to leave you with today is simply this. Do you? Do you? Do you know Jesus? 
Do you know him personally? Have you come to see him for who he truly is? God the Son, the Lord of all, the one who left the riches of heaven, took on flesh to live, die, and rise again in our place. The light of the world, the one who came to bring light and life to our dark and dead world and light and life to our dark and dead life. Are you trusting in him and in the work he accomplished on your behalf alone for your salvation? Have you forsaken your sin, repented of that sin, and are you relying upon the life Christ lived, trusting in the death he died in your place, and have you been raised with him to new life, eternal life? If not, now's the time. This is the place and time to place your faith and trust in Christ alone. If you have not, I urge you to today, lay your life down, forsake your sin, give your life up and over to Jesus. Make him Lord today and be saved. Let's pray together.